The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Support for this show comes from the Festival of Faiths, an interfaith celebration of music, poetry, and dialogue with internationally renowned spiritual leaders. The 2017 festival runs April 19th through 24th in Louisville, Kentucky, with a talk by the Dalai Lama. Details at festivaloffaiths.org. From Spirituality and Health magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Before I introduce our guest, I want to invite you to join me in Nashville, Tennessee, on March 24, 25, and 26, for three days of wisdom, music, love, and resistance as we celebrate the publication of the World Wisdom Bible and initiate a global spiritual movement rooted in the interdependence of all life and the ethic of compassion and justice that interdependence demands. To learn more, please visit oneriverfoundation.org. Thanks for that. Our guest today is Krista Tippett a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster, New York Times best-selling author, recipient of the National Humanities Medal, and the host and executive producer of On Being. Her newest book is Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery of an art of living. An interview with Krista Tippett appears in the November-December 2016 issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Krista Tippett, welcome to Essential Conversations. I'm very glad to be with you. Well, it is an honor to talk with you. Because we have only 20 minutes, I you know, I would love to start the way you start and say, well, tell us about your, your religious <laughs> background, but we don't have time. So we're going to just cut to the chase, jump right into the book. <laughs> and there's, there, there's something you say in the beginning of the book, uh, in the first couple of, it's actually page 29, if anyone wants to look it up. But you write, if I've learned nothing else, I've learned this. A question is a powerful thing, a mighty use of words. Questions elicit answers in their likeness. Answers mirror the questions they rise or fall to meet. So I, too, love this whole notion of questions. I think questions are, as you do, very, very powerful. But I wasn't clear as to exactly what you have in mind when you say questions elicit answers in their likeness. It sounds like the question shapes the answer. The question absolutely shapes the answer. Um, And I think we see this all the time without reflecting on it. And we, we often see it, it, it that, that mighty, (laughs) that mighty power negatively used. I think we, we see a lot of questions um, that aren't really questions at all. They're, they're, um, suspicious or combative, or actually we, we hear a lot of questions that are really about the questioner and not actually driven by genuine curiosity, genuinely wanting to understand um, 
the person on the other end is a question. And I, I think that, you know, one way I say this is, is if, if you, you know, if you are asked a suspicious question or a combative question, it's very hard to transcend that, to meet a suspicious or combative question with anything but a similar kind, a similar tone of answer. Um, on the positive side, um, it's very hard to resist a generous question. When somebody really wants to know, you feel that and you respond in kind, and it makes something possible between human beings. Mm, so you're really talking about questions and answers that come up in a conversation, a dialogue. When is that? Is that fair? Yes. That, that, I mean, I think I think it can. I think you can hear. I think journalists can can do this well, also. Um, but but you know I think what we're talking about here is the intentionality behind a question, mm. which which also transmits itself in which we meet, um, one way or the other with our own you know with what is we're talking about what is behind words, <laughs> right? Because words, right, right. words are always carrying so much more than. So you know I mean my my area is I mean I'm a rabbi so my area is Judaism but uh, I, I'm a professor of world religion so. I'm interested in in all of this stuff, and I, it always strikes me that the questions that theologians ask are designed to elicit the answers they already hold. There is no real curiosity in theology, in a sense. It's I mean that's why the Jews, you know, rabbis never discover that the Hindus are the chosen people. You know, no, <laughs> Catholic theologians never discover Krishna rather than. You know, Jesus is the Christ. So, so their their questions are, in a sense, faux questions. Uh, do you ever, do you ever get that sense when you talk to people who are, you know, deeply rooted in a in a faith that the questions they answer are designed to come up with the answers they already hold? I absolutely do, but and I also think I don't think it's limited to theologians. And I and honestly, I think that for a few generations here, we've been. We, we, we've been trained to do answers well. We're not actually trained to ask questions. Right. As you're saying, the, where the answers might surprise us or might challenge um, our beliefs or might, in fact, make us think hard, might, in fact, leave us silent. <laughs> mm. Well, that, that's why I wondered about you have a real passion for science and you talk to a lot of scientists yeah. and a deep respect for for science and scientific methods and scientific inquiry comes out in in actually both of the books that that you've written so do you get a sense that the questions or the way scientists ask questions is different than the way uh well i don't know if we want to keep using the word theologian but religious people ask questions Seem just so. You, so I'm sort of framing it that so you know the answer yeah. I want. <laughs> no, right? No. <laughs> well, no, but I think that I do. I have experienced that scientists have a greater appetite often for mystery, right? For in fact, for unanswerable questions that are going to open your mind and take you places you didn't know you wanted to go. Um, I mean, I, that is actually something that I just I revere about scientists. It's not that they're not after answers. They're after discoveries. Uh, they're after learning new things. But they are actually thrilled when something presents itself that they don't understand. And, and, they, and they realize they have to start formulating new questions. And perhaps the answers they had have been overturned. 
That's yeah. And so have that. That's exactly what I was getting at is that scientists can have their answers overturned. I don't get the same sense from, from those of us on the religion end of the equation. So, yes, I feel that we could learn from the spirit of scientific inquiry. Uh, You know, one of my favorite conversations a long time ago was with a geneticist who was also an Anglican priest and he said that he felt that the the spirituality of the scientist was a, was akin to the spirituality of the mystic and i like the way he said that it, it that it is at one and the same time about you know thirsting for knowledge and and discerning as best you can what truth might be but holding that always in a creative tension with a delight in the fact that there are things you will never pin down and you won't understand in this lifetime. Right. And, and I like the idea that, that it's linked or, or he links it to, or she links it to mysticism or to mystics because mysticism is, I'm oversimplifying certainly, but mysticism is a science. It's a practice. It's a way Mm -hmm. of exploring Mm -hmm. Through whether it's meditation or chanting or whatever, whatever it happens to be, that can actually lead you to a place that you didn't know. You didn't know that's where you were going. It takes you beyond your question or beyond your answer, and that's the. Yeah, you're right. It's a life of of inquiry, like a life of science. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh Exactly. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to see religions of inquiry rather than religions of faith. Which brings me to to. of evangelical pastor Cal DeWitt's definition of religion, which you talk about in the Mm. book, he defines it as the passion to live rightly on earth and to spread right living. And, you know, it seems to me that sort of begs the question, what does it mean to what, what's right living? I I don't think religions agree on that. I I also think that what right living is, um, is, is, well, well, I don't know if they, I mean, there's certainly, you know, I think at their best, our traditions are these great repositories of conversations across generation um, and rituals and um, practices that actually can accompany that work of right living. Um, but I also think that, that each of us, you know, we, we work that out one day at a time within the context of our life. Um, I mean, I know if he, if we sat down with Cal DeWitt and we had a lot more than 20 minutes, I think I know he would be very articulate about about how he's come to um, to understand that and to put it into action. I, I guess what I also appreciate that is, you know, this frustration with um, with 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 religious with faith that doesn't invite questions, but also I'm equally frustrated with faith that doesn't. Um, focus that doesn't act, you know, you know, yeah, like John right. Lewis, you know, John Lewis, all the civil rights uh, leaders they were working with, uh, and Abraham, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel kind of quoted this. I mean, this African proverb, you know, when you pray, move your feet. Right, and so right. I think that's the spirit of Caldewitz's um, definition of religion. There's a way mm. of living and not just a way of believing. Right. I think you see the same thing in Richard Rohr's work and Andrew Harvey's mm. work. Where it's sacred activism, as I think it's how uh, yeah. and Andrew Harvey talks about it. Contemplative action is, I think, Richard Rohr's phrase, uh, or or act, yeah, something like that. But yeah, no, I, I actually, I, I absolutely agree with that. 
one of the things that troubles me is I, I, not too long ago, I wrote a book on the golden rule in the world's religions, and they all have some variation of the golden rule, but they all break the golden rule when it's uh, necessary for them to do so to achieve whatever ends they're trying to achieve. You know, in, in, in one breath, the Hebrew Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. And in the next breath, it says, commit genocide against the people who happen to be in your way when you're taking over what they imagined was the promised land. So I, I just, I, I always want to ground ethics in something greater than faith or greater than religion. Do you get a sense that there is a larger ground for this right living? Yes. Well, I, and I guess what what you said is is also what I mean by it's something you know that we work out with fear and trembling every day of our lives, um, because it is true in life. I mean, it's you know not just in 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 biblical theology, but in life that. You know, the different loves you have uh, or your sense of justice, that these things can compete. And there are these messy challenges we face. And so if I guess, you know, I don't know if that's a larger ground or I think it's like it's being planted on the ground. Right. It's the complexity of these these grand and essential aspirations and then um, the messiness of of life. And, you know, that's when I was setting out to write about wisdom, I actually at first had this kind of lofty idea about what I was writing about. And the more I got into it and really interrogated what this look, looks like, looks like in the, and how it works in the wisest lives I know, I ended up really focus on focusing on kind of the raw materials of our lives, our bodies, our words, um, uh, as the, the only place that this really happens. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Mm, right, exactly. It's, in, it's a very, the book is very practical in that sense. It's not an abstract understanding of wisdom. It's how it's where wisdom meets your everyday reality. I mean, that's, that's certainly true. You know, you and I have both interviewed uh, Matthew Ricard, um, yes, I saw that. I saw that you'd interviewed him. Yeah, so so we both interviewed him about his happiness book, his altruism book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just spoke with him a few weeks ago about his book on uh, animal rights, animal welfare, treating animals with with respect. And in in talking with him, you know, I, I'm, I again asked that kind of question. So what's it grounded in? And for him, it's grounded in the experience, not the theory, but the experience. Mm-hmm. Of the, you know, pratityat samutpada, the interdependence of all things. These, I mean, you'd no more hurt, you know, a, a fly. I mean, now it's sort of into the Jain tradition, which is a little more extreme. But you'd no more hurt another, an, an animal than you would unnecessarily take your right hand and get an axe and cut off your left. It's all part of the singular body that that we are. So I'm, I'm always looking for that 
which is like which is why I like your linking of the scientist and the mystic. They seem to come to that same place of yeah. interdependence. Is do, do you do you buy that idea of of uh, the interdependence? Yes. And the- yes, I. You know, it's it's also I think our growth as as people and as peoples it, it rests on whether we can really inhabit the reality of interdependence because interdependence is a reality right it's a fact it's not an idea um but because of the way our brains are configured because of the way we ways we structured our society and our economies and um you know just the way the complexity of what it means to be human we we have trouble taking that in we have trouble organizing our lives around it um if we don't, though, you know, it, 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 especially in, 20, in the 21st century, in a globalized world where, you know, we can push back against this as much as we want, but we are connected. We are connected. We are in relationship with others. Um, and our survival now depends on that. And our flourishing depends on it. But we have a ways to go to really embody that knowledge. So do you think, I mean, so, so it's a fact. I agree with you that it's a fact. And then there's our whole, uh, we have this new word that came out from Kellyanne Conway a couple of days ago. Uh, I'll give you an alternative fact. You know? yeah. And, and yeah. the alternative fact is tribalism is this uh, disconnect, not just between humans and other species and, or, and humans and nature, but humans and, and other humans. Are you optimistic that... Um, we can, are, are, do, do you get a sense we're turning in the wrong direction at the moment? Or do you think this is just sort of a blip and we're, we're headed still in this direction of greater and greater interdependence? Well, in terms of this interdependence, I, I think that the reactions against it, which are in the United States and in many other places, right? There's something globally going on, yeah. which is reactionary in my mind in a classic sense. And reactionary comes in response to change that is already underway. Um, so, you know, there, what I see is that it, at the, at, there are several different narratives, <laughs> you could call them alternative narratives, and alternative realities that are in fact coexisting in the world right now. And one of them is that a lot of barriers um, that were there not that long ago have fallen away in a very rapid pace of time. And, um, you know, I, I, I do think we have to be, I, I think that as creatures, this kind of pace of change, especially when we've been hardwired all these millennia to be defending our kin and tribe against the other, um, it's, it's, this is harder for some to make that transition than others. And some people are more vulnerable in the midst of that change. And so I didn't feel like that's the, that's like the reality we're living with writ large. I'm not optimistic. I'm not, I mean, I'm not optimistic about political life right now here or almost anywhere, but I see a lot um, of other narratives and realities and relationships playing out all around us that I, I take seriously alongside what is alarming. Um, 
And so, and that, you know, there's so much that I'm hopeful about, um, but it's not happening at that mega level. Well, and, you're saying that, that a yeah. lot of this is about where the, the, the intimacy and immediacy of everyday life, you see it happening there, yeah. it sounds yes, like. Yes, 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 yes. So I think the question is, um, I mean, I think as we've entered this new interconnected world with our technologies and just with this, with the number, the you know, the the size, the immensity of humanity, um, I, I think it, it's probably more true than ever before that change will not come down from above, but emanate up from the ground. Yeah. But it's. Um, it's messy and the future is uncertain and the stakes are high. And so there's something, you know, there's, there's something beautiful about saying that it is up to each of us. You know, there's something empowering about that to say it's, it's up to each of us in our life in our neighborhood and our family to, you know, to do what we can in the world we can see and touch to create the realities we want to inhabit the realities we want our children and everybody else's children to inherit. Um, but it's but it's hard, and I think we're doing work for generations, and we are we are in a we're in a perilous moment. Yeah, so and that's gonna, why we need each other, right? We have to accompany each other. We can't leave each other alone with this work. Right, right. absolutely, and, and I think you can hear in your voice and in your answer the struggle between hope and I don't want to say despair, but but the struggle that you go through between optimism or pessimism, that this is a very fraught moment. And but it's also this opportunity to really as individuals yeah. and as families and as smaller communities to, to do something about it, um, to create a reality that's perhaps more rooted in actual fact than uh, the, the alternative facts that lead us to these very painful narratives. Yes. And, you know, I, I mean, th there's so much that's happening that's kind of a caricature of of what we maybe needed to learn or, you know, what wasn't working anymore. But, you know, just the arguing over facts, right? I mean, I mean there, there's a larger reality that, in fact, we, Western culture was way too wedded to facts as, you know, the way you could discern the whole truth. And that was never true. I mean, the things you and I are talking about um, you know, how life happens and the quality of lives, it's always been bigger than facts. Um, and so, you know, we're having, to, so we have to claim that too. Right. The mystery is always bigger than the facts we know about it at the moment. Yeah. And what is embodied? Our stories, right? Our relationships, the connections between us. It's not that facts don't matter. They do. But they're only, they've only ever been part of the picture, they only tell part of the story and they're only part of the, you know, a, a small part, I would say, of the tools we need to create our lives and to create our life together. Mm. Well, the fact is we are out of time, so we're going to have <laughs> to end it there. My guest today was Krista Tippett, author of Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. An interview with Krista appears in the November-December 2016 issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. And you can learn more about her work at onbeing.org. Support for today's broadcast comes from the Festival of Faiths, an interfaith celebration of music, poetry, and dialogue with internationally renowned spiritual leaders. 
The 2017 festival runs from April 19th to the 24th in Louisville, Kentucky, and features a talk by the Dalai Lama. Details for the Festival of Faith are available at festivaloffaiths.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log into spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.